1: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I am excited to be interviewing Christopher Wood about his book, A History of Art History, which was published by Princeton University Press in September of 2019. Dr. Wood is currently professor of German at New York University. From 1992 until 2014, he taught in the Department of the History of Art at Yale University. He is the author of several important books, including Forgery Replica Fiction, Temporalities of German Renaissance Art, and my personal favorite, Anachronic Renaissance, which he co-authored with Alexander Nagel. In 2002, he was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, as well as a Rome Prize Fellowship to the American Academy in Rome. He is the recipient of several further fellowships and is also currently a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The book we'll be discussing today marks a landmark contribution to the understanding of art history. In it, Dr. Wood tracks the evolution of the historical study of art from the late Middle Ages through to the rise of the modern scholarly discipline of art history. Synthesizing and assessing a vast array of writings, episodes, and personalities, this wide-ranging account, the first of its kind in English, explores the development of art historical thinking over more than a thousand years. I am very happy to get to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Christopher Wood, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Allison. it's a, it's a privilege and an honor uh, to be speaking with you. Thank you well, very much.
1: I'm very excited about this episode, this book, you know, lots to talk about today. So I'm going to ask you if you don't mind beginning off just by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you were born, where you attended graduate school, any mentors you've, you had along the way, uh, maybe how you first became interested in art history. I always find this a kind of interesting thing to prod at. So just give us some of your background if you would.
0: Well, I was born in Boston, and that's the Athens of America, and uh, with uh, excellent museums, the Museum of Fine Arts and the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. And I actually grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, but I, I was frequently in Boston, and uh, and I, you know, I got to know those museums pretty well. But I, but they were for me, you know, um, I don't know, just kind of. Uh, um, immediate, uh, highly personalized, um, moving experiences. And I, I kept it all separate in a way from my studies, which were gravitating towards history and literature. And that's what I majored in in college at Harvard, um, U- uh, European, English, French, and German history and literature. But art history was kind of lurking, lurking in the background. I, I, was, I, was, I was curious about it. And then after college, I got a fellowship to the University of Munich in Munich, Germany. And uh, well, this was a big adventure for me. I mean, the, the idea of going off for a year and studying, and I didn't know what I wanted to study. I just wanted to, 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 to sample all the classes. It was like starting college over again. And uh, you know, I, 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 I looked into some philosophy courses, some history courses, but then I poked my head into the auditorium where the art history lectures were being given, and there were a thousand people in the, in the audience yes and at harvard you know where art history you know has a distinguished tradition there were never more than 20 or 30 i mean you had survey classes with maybe 100 or 150 students but most lecture courses you know 10 maybe 20 everything was on a kind of um you know homemade amateur uh scale and so it kind of provincialized harvard i suddenly thought you know in germany in munich Art history is a major discipline. Clearly, the students take it seriously. The university takes it seriously. There's a kind of there was. I just felt there was this kind of tremendous intellectual investment. So I I started learning about the history of the discipline. and I suddenly realized that the discipline is a relatively modern discipline. That it had joined the um, the faculties only at the very end of the nineteenth century in Germany. And I quickly learned as I was learning German and reading more and more that it, it that for much of its modern history in the uh, from the late eighteenth. Till well into the 20th century and even, even into our century, is in some sense fundamentally a German uh, project in a way. And well, anyways, I got all interested in the, it, it, art history as a, as a kind of intellectual project, art history as a, um, as a dimension, let's say, of modern intellectual history, modern cultural history. Uh, it's the interaction between art history as a discipline and modernism in the arts, after all, they're contemporaneous. Art history uh, emerged as a serious field of academic study in the late 19th century and flourished in the early 20th century, and you know this better than I, exactly in the generations of uh, what we now call, you know, high modernism. So, so that's, that's kind of how I sort of academicized it in a way. But then, after... So I suddenly realized that, well, art is, art is historical and art is, is, is coordinated with history. And I would say in a way that's been the main theme of art history. That's why it's called art history. It's the, it's the attempt to tell the story uh, of, of, of art's evolution, but always coordinated with extra artistic reality. That's the, that's the fun. That idea, which we sometimes call the contextual study of art or the social history of art, Many people think it was invented in the nineteen sixties or seventies in Britain and America, but in fact it's the it, it goes right back to the beginning, in Rochester, you know this, that in the nineteenth century that was the that was the, the the default mode of art history was to coordinate it with worldviews and mentalities to think about social structures to think about uh, the economics of patronage uh, all of this was the was was what art history had to offer and I you know immersed myself in this and uh, got excited about for example uh, Michael Baxendahl, which everyone everyone really since the 70s everyone of my generation but also younger still thinks of his books on Renaissance art as somehow exemplary and um, uh, and still, um, you know, still kind of guideposts for us in many ways. And in fact, I felt that I was, uh, in a way, recapitulating Baxendahl's story, because if you read his memoir, uh, which he published uh, right at the end of his life, he also had a kind of much more sort of a naive, bodily, I think his father was an antiques dealer or something. I mean, he had this kind of basic relationship to art that many of us have when we're growing up. I'm sure you did too, just wanting to be in museums, um, or wanting to own a few uh, precious things. We all had that. But how did Baxendahl academicize his, his intimacy with art? The same way I did. He went to Munich. After college, he went to university and then he, he, he got himself to Munich and studied and, and listened to lectures in the very same rooms that I did, but a generation earlier. And also in those very halls of the same university, somehow got a sense of the full intellectual possibilities of the discipline. But then, and just to kind of wrap up this kind of arc of the story, is that no sooner had I become a contextualist than I became disillusioned. And I thought that somehow to explain art historically was to betray it, in fact, or, or even worse, just to miss the point entirely. And I still feel that, Alison, and that's why the point of my book and really my, my overall um, point of view and campaign is, it, it, is that I'm protective of art history as a project Okay, but I'm I'm protective of art most of all, and what I, I what I want to do is, is 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 explain and also promote a kind of art history that is highly um, respectful of art, where art remains uh, somehow um, mysterious, somehow just beyond the reach of our historical explanations. It sounds like a, a paradoxical formulation, but I want to say that the strongest historical explanations are the ones that recognize their limits. They're the ones that. They, they, they know exactly what about art they cannot explain. And that makes for powerful and moving art history, I think. So I, I tried to write a, a history of that project.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you you definitely do that. And I'm so glad that you're kind of blending this this initial question of, of how did you come to art history with how you got to writing this book and what this book, what its driving impetus is in many ways, because... I think, you know, maybe those who encounter the book and and it is it is not a, a small or insignificant text. I mean, this is a weighty tome, I think, compared to many books that are coming out in art history that really seem to be capped at 100,000 words, you know, aren't often more than 200, 250 pages. This is a packed 400 pages of exactly what you were just describing, really trying to dig at the groundwork of not just what the history of art history is but why we do you know what we do how different people have done it different ways in different eras i mean you come at this problem and and desi- real desire that you're describing to to honor art and and question have we gotten it right who got it better you know like th- that comes across very strongly in the book so Maybe as a follow-up question, I was going to ask you, you know, how did you come to write this book? But I think you've already been in some ways describing that. Maybe it would be better to sort of ask that, but tag onto it this question of why did you feel this particular historiographical intervention is necessary now, either in your career or in terms of where we are in our history?
0: Yes, that's the that's that's exactly a question I'd like to uh, address or try to grapple with. I, I definitely think that uh, art history is in a predicament. I guess that's the way I would put it. And I, I try to strike a note in the book which is somewhere between hope and pessimism. Sometimes I get pessimistic, and I wonder, you know, who, who, who's our audience? You know, are we are we providing for the society? Uh, what we ought to. And I was struck uh, 10 years ago, and this is maybe one of the genesis points of the book by a comment by a distinguished colleague of mine in English literature, uh, teachers at the University of Pennsylvania, a kind of major scholar, somewhat older than I am, maybe 10 years older. But 10 years ago, he asked me, and it was at a conference, you know, in a reception, he said, uh, whatever happened to art history? Oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, this is a, this is a you know, deeply discouraging thing to hear because, you know, I'm publishing books and I think I'm doing art history and all my colleagues are and my friends, yes. and, right? And, but he meant it in a kind of you know, kind of semi-friendly way. It wasn't being hostile. He was just saying, and I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, when I was a student, and he's going back to the 60s and 70s, I guess, and he's saying, you know, there were these major figures, Erwin Panofsky... Ernst Gombrich. And then there were these younger figures emerging, like Michael Baxendahl, who whose first book, you know, was published in 1970 or 71. He's talking about a golden age when that older generation was still active, still alive, and the younger generation. And these were scholars. He's implying that were read all the way across the. The, the, the humanistic disciplines. So every literature professor and every historian, anthropologists, all the disciplines, they were well aware of those major figures, Gombrich and Panofsky, but also even older figures like Heinrich Werfling, you know, from the early part of the 20th century. And in, in Europe, not so much in America, but in, in, in Europe, uh, scholars in a wide range of disciplines would have been familiar with names like Alois Riegel, Abby Warburg, and many, many others. And, uh, and it suddenly struck me that you know, we've, we've lost our audience. And then another friend of mine around the same time, who's an artist, uh, an artist and a well-informed artist, well-read artist, and he said more or less the same thing to me. He says, whatever happened to art history's ambition to kind of explain things to the society as a whole, and his frame of reference was not just academia. He didn't care so much about academia. He was saying that for all of us, all literate people, Art history was a beacon. Art history was a kind of mediating discipline that um, was more accessible because you don't you don't have the problem with foreign languages. Anyone can go to a museum and and connect directly with works of art. You don't have to study for years to master you know foreign discipline, foreign languages, and, and specialized terminology. It had this kind of, I guess, a kind of intellectually democratic promise. Which he thought, again, it had lost or sacrificed or basically entrusted to the museums. Like we, the academic scholars have more or less said, Oh, you museums deal with that in your, in the, and this is condescending on the part of academics, we'll say, in your naive kind of way and your, you know, this promotion of a religion of art and so forth, great masterpieces, you go ahead and cater to the public. We're doing much more critical, challenging studies that address only each other, but really only each other, really only within art history, because as the other scholar, indicates we've lost the readership in uh, literature and so forth. So, you know, it's, then I did some research on this, and, I, you know, I, I think I'm ready to make the claim that Gombrich, and, I, I, you know, I, I know you, but many of our listeners are aware of who Ernst Gombrich is. He wrote The Story of Art, and uh, he wrote many other books which uh, um, which have wide readerships. I, would, I believe that he's possibly the humanistic scholar, that is to say the scholar- in a humanistic discipline such as history, literary studies, art history and so forth, in the entire 20th century with the widest readership. I mean, His mm-hmm. book sold millions of copies. Uh, I, I, I don't think in any... I don't think there's any comparable figure in another discipline. So, you know, that you know, makes me you know a little a little sad about where we are. Another thing, another another aspect which I'd want to um, um, call attention to, which which I think of as an aspect of this predicament, is that I can track over the course of my own um, teaching career, the decline in interest on the part of students, undergraduate students in mm-hmm. older art or pre-modern art. So when I started teaching quite some years ago at Yale, um, every year there would be, oh, I don't know, anywhere from five to ten, sometimes even more undergraduate, undergraduate art history majors who wanted to write their senior essays with me. You know, this kind of semester long projects where they, where they kind of, you know, delve into something really seriously. And they very often wrote them on pre-modern art. So m- medieval art, Renaissance art, Baroque art, you know, but before the 20th century. And over the years, that number just dwindled. Now you could say, well, maybe you know, maybe my teaching, uh, you know, got worse. But I don't no, think so. No. Teaching teaching probably gets better as you get older, and, and you know, and uh, or maybe I just got older and started to represent for them. You know, only old people are interested in this older. But it's but by the end of my time at Yale, I was getting basically zero senior essay people. And I, and I said, what's going on in the department? And they said, Well, it's not your fault. It's not like they're working on Rembrandt or, uh, you know, or, uh, or Michelangelo, but they're working with another professor. No, they're all writing their senior essays on contemporary art, not even 20th century, because Picasso after a certain point, and you can speak to this better than I, uh, uh, that's your perspective as a, as a modernist, even Picasso has receded such that he's seen as a as an old master. So what they mean is by by I'll tell you an anecdote from a colleague of mine at, uh, uh, at USC who is a little younger than I am and he was uh, you know he he was involved in the art of the 90s so during the 90s he was you know uh, engaged in the contemporary art of that moment and writing about it and so forth and uh, and you know when he was a young man and so, and he was lecturing at USC on modern and contemporary art and one of the students came up to him kind of bright student and impatiently said well professor like when are we going to get to the you know when are we going to get to the 2010s when, when does this course get to you know like where we are now and and and, and he said because like you know this after this long slog through the 90s and so that's what that's the that's the phrase that the student used so he basically was saying like this you know the 90s are kind of boring. They've just become a little bit irrelevant. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's great that you're enthusiastic about it, but basically saying, like, what really interests most of us in this classroom is where we are now and where we're going. Mm-hmm. Now, what is my reaction to that? On the one hand, I feel, well, you know, I'm kind of in despair. I think, well, will there be, you know, will there be, will there be new scholars of older art coming up through the ranks, if that's the attitude? of so this? where will we recruit? young people who are willing to you know study history learn the languages and so forth but and I th- I want to kind of cycle back to the point I made earlier about being protective of art and um, and, uh, and, and and basically uh, in, in favor of an art history that is um, not just respectful but actually, uh, I, I don't know kind of worships art like takes art really really seriously and, and is unwilling to reduce it to its uh, to its uh, circum- mere circumstances or un- unwilling to materialize make it you know something that's merely material or functional okay now in the contemporary landscape of art history and I wonder whether this is your perspective too I find that the more and more of the people who work on the older art—that is to say, like me—maybe I didn't explain that yet. Really, that you know, the, the, the art historical work that I do, the research I do, which is the bulk of my work, I don't just sit around and write about the history of art history year after year. I do mm-hmm. research in in historical fields, so in late, especially late medieval, Renaissance, and to some extent Baroque art. So we're talking about, you know, from the 1300s. I just finished a book on 14th-century Italian art, so the mm. period of Giotto. Uh, that was my COVID project. Project. and uh, uh, so starting from around 1300 and going up to let's say around 1800 and even a, somewhat into the 19th century that would be material I work on okay not 20th century so uh, however I feel that a lot of the other people my peers who work in that field are increasingly diffident and reluctant to speak directly about concept of art they know they, they're in, increasingly reluctant to designate the object of their study as art. They almost always use art with scare quotes around it. Mm-hmm. And they'll instead prefer to say, well, I, we work on images or image culture, or we work on material artifacts, or we work on visual culture, but any any number of circumlocutions, but God forbid that, saying that we work on art. Well, that's this goes back to the, these earlier comments I may have reported from these colleagues who said, well, well where are the art historians? Well, uh, I would say that the public i don't just mean undergrads at elite universities but uh, everyone out there who loves art and is going to museums and buying art or painting making drawing uh, sculpting all the people in our society who m- number in the tens of millions who are very invested in art and feel in feel drawn to art and so forth these people want to hear about art mm-hmm. all of those listeners and readers uh, want to want want to know about art and i, I would say that that's a pact that we made once with society that we'll, we, you know, you, you subsidize us in various ways, and we'll go do research, and we'll come back and tell you things about art that are going to make you feel closer to that art. That seems to me a basic pact. Well, that pact has been broken by many of my peers, who will tell you that oh, art is a kind of bourgeois fantasy of the of the of invented in the 19th century. It's a sort of secular religion. It's meant to replace the old religion, and uh, it's a it's a it's a modern Western uh, construction um and you know we can't we can't apply the term or impose the term on on pre-modern cultures well i would push back against that uh but uh what i what, what i want to say is that and this puts me in this kind of paradoxical position with uh, vis-a-vis the 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 young uh, younger s- uh, students and scholars who were who obsessed with contemporary art what do i like about their obsession with contemporary art i like their obsession with contemporary art, because art is in the foreground. They at least believe in art. Mm -hmm. That guy who went up to my friend and said, well, when are we going to get done with the 90s so we can get to the present? That's because he's passionate about art. He's passionate about art that we make now and today, and he's very, very concerned about where it's going. Mm -hmm. Right? He wants to know, like, what's next? What's going to be the next big thing in art? Now, that is very precious. That's very precious to me and it, it means a lot to me too i also want to know where art is going i don't understand why we can't preserve that passion about where art is and where it's going when we also study the older art and mm-hmm. we ask not where it's going but where has it been where has it been what are its what are its various peregrinations
1: yeah oh i find all this so fascinating there's there's just there's so much that i want to respond to and sort of ask about i'm tempted to to say In response, at least immediately, that I wonder how much this sense that you have that students are very interested in contemporary, you know, want to talk about what's happening now, want to know what the next great art is going to be in the way that you're describing is a function of being mostly in places in the Northeast where contemporary art is really happening. You need to come to Louisiana, Chris, because the students down here are so eager to stay entrenched in not only the Renaissance and the Baroque. They're obsessed with the Baroque. When we leave the Baroque, they're all upset and disappointed and want to go back. But they're actually really interested in like paleolithic art. It's like I have to drag them out of those cave paintings because they find the mystery surrounding them so interesting and the the lack of sort of theories that are firm to explain them um and and the closer I get to the twentieth century, the more the eye rolling the no no, this is garbage, I don't want to look at this, my dog could have painted that, you know they they're in the south very resistant and skeptical about what art has been in say the last i don't know seventy years or so, and the further we get, the more pushback I get, and the more desire to go back to this you know, art history that worships art that they perceive to be fundamental to the Renaissance and the pre-modern era, and having been lost, <laughs> oh, tragically lost by the contemporary practitioners.
0: That is incredible what you're telling me, Alison, and you're right, I'm a provincial of the Northeast. and uh, But it, it makes me think, first of all, you are uh, uh, clearly a very gifted teacher, if you can excite them about uh, all that material. Um, but I... I it. I don't know what to say, because yes, I should know more about all the different mentalities far from Yale and NYU and so forth. You're right, because um, now I teach in New York City. We have many foreign students, but they're themselves very cosmopolitan. And at Yale, not only is it in the orbit of New York City, but the, the Yale University Art School, the School of Art at Yale is one of the top you know three art schools in the country basically so it's right in tune with the New York art world and you're right I'm like that's I'm like a fish in water there oh, I don't well, even realize
1: I would never have realized it either having come from the northeast and taught in New York City like you have and are you know I had no idea what to expect in terms of the difference and had to really adjust in terms of how I teach I appreciate you saying you think I must be a gifted professor I think you're right you get better as you go and you learn how to gauge yourself to your audience, I think is really key. And, you know, down here, the other thing is, it's so much more traditionally religious and Christian than in the North that I don't have to do a lot of explaining of the narratives and altarpieces pieces and things. They're like, yeah, yeah, we know who that is. All right. You know, keep keep going to keep tell us more. We know who Samson is. We know who David is. You know, they, they just get that in a way that in New York, I had to really be like, okay, let me tell you who the, all these people are. You know, it it's just, it's very different in a way I never anticipated. Um, and I do think, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm listening with, with great interest. I, I, and I'm, I have mixed feelings because part of me would like to have students uh, whom I didn't have to kind of, you know, uh, you know, get on my knees and beg them to, to, to love this art. I, they come with a natural respect. Well, on the other hand, I, uh, I, I don't approve of their attitude towards modern contemporary art. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, I, I do not share that at all. I think yeah. that the modernism is a, you know, is a, is a, is an irreversible phenomenon. It's, it just engulfs our, 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 our whole culture. Modernism is not something that's optional in a way. It's So it, one has to just live in it and, and accept it. And I think, uh, I would tie this into, because I said earlier, and maybe we would want to return to that in the context of what we're saying, which is very, very interesting, this kind of resistance to modernism on, on, on the part of many people, that um, it is tied in with art history. Because I mentioned briefly earlier that I thought art history was a discipline that was kind of entangled with modernism in many ways. And the reason I say that is because, let me let me backtrack a little bit to romanticism, which is obviously the kind of matrix of or at least the way I see it, I don't know how you see it, but the matrix of modernism, and I'll say what I mean by that. Romanticism is the big turning point in my book, and it happens sort of in the middle. And uh, the, the, what happened in a nutshell is that for the first time, and it happened quite quickly within a, within a, within a couple of decades or so, um, a number of people started looking with generosity and appreciation at medieval art, medieval European art. But we, you know, if you walk into the Metropolitan Museum or go to the cloisters or, uh, uh, or any major museum, you'll see um, um, uh, medieval Christian art displayed and medieval secular art, for that matter, displayed side by side with equal standing to the works of the Renaissance and Baroque and modern. But that. Uh, Stand, standing and status—the high status that medieval art has as art—is something that was in, um, basically invented or discovered for the first time in the late eighteenth and early nineteenth centuries. Up until then, medieval art was seen as an embarrassment, mm-hmm. and it, it was the, it was the it was a period of decline when the achievements of Greek and Roman painters and sculptors were forgotten, and painters forgot how to paint, sculptors forgot how to sculpt. Um, they. Uh, they continued, um, you know, persisted in some traditions, basically. But, you know, it, to the eyes of, of a Renaissance painter, medieval art was just an embarrassment. And and, and, and and modernity, that is by modernity, now I mean the Renaissance, was all about um, forgetting that as quickly as possible, destroying most of it or putting it away in cupboards uh, and replacing it with the beautiful, technically proficient paintings and sculptures of uh, of the Renaissance, and, and, and I'm, I'm speaking of the Italian Renaissance, but also Northern European artists like um, Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo, Titian, Albrecht Dürer, and so forth, all leading on to the great art of the Baroque, Rembrandt, Velasquez, and so forth. From their point of view, medieval art was just a was just a, a dark cupboard with. So suddenly in the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, a certain number of um, tastemakers, let's call them, started uh, looking again at medieval art. And they said, well, you know, actually, um, these works have a special quality. They may be crudely made often, but they have a soulfulness. They have an authenticity. They have an intensity. They have a gravitas uh, that many of our modern works of art lack. Modern art was, at that by modern again now I mean in Late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, was becoming very self-conscious, very mannered, um, you know, relying on all kinds of tricks. Maybe a little bit, looking a little bit too rhetorical and so forth. And by contrast, the medieval art, as primitive as it might be, was in fact more authentic and valuable. And this was a complete overturning of taste, basically. And I call this an um, an ironic mode of thinking about art history. And by ironic, I mean basically a kind of redistribution of value and blame or praise and blame, whereby the mighty are cast down and the lowly are raised up, you know. And uh, so suddenly uh, all the values get reversed. And it became, you know, by 1820, it became respectable and but still kind of exciting to say something like, well, this anonymous wood carving from the from from the 12 or 1300s is to me more precious and valuable than this uh, uh um, you know uh, painting painted in Rome in 1590 or something which is you know hanging in a in an aristocrat's home and so there's a whole political and a class dimension to this it's it's a revolution now what were the the features what were some of the features of the of the uh, medieval art and by the way I should add also this was the beginning of the appreciation of what we sometimes call non-western art but let's mm-hmm. just call art beyond europe yeah. so suddenly people start looking at uh at the art of South Asia, they start looking at the art. Now we can hardly call these primitive traditions, but in the eyes of Europeans, they seemed very, um, they, they, you know, they seemed unfamiliar. So they often mm-hmm. judged traditions. They knew that Chinese and Japanese art was not primitive. <laughs> they could, they knew enough to know that these were in fact much older traditions of art than mm-hmm. than, uh, than than European. But they were baffled by. Uh, South Asian art, and they were baffled by African art. Uh, but they started to look at them. And as you all know, I mean, uh, and, and as, as, as you know very well, Alison in, in the early 20th century, uh, Picasso principally, but many other modernists um, were uh, energized by their encounters with African sculpture. And that's just one of many, many episodes of this um, kind of ironic embrace of what was, what it seemed, uh, what it seemed uh, remote and uh, forbidding Uh, unintelligible really now becomes a resource for for uh, for creativity so what are some of the qualities that they were looking for in african masks or in medieval sculpture medieval painting they were looking for qualities of authenticity we mentioned but often um i would say uh um you know uh, well principles of difference and otherness of course but a kind of negativity, sometimes a disorder, a dissonance, let's call it a dissonance. And uh, whereas the previous, let's call it idealist or academic theory of art, the one that was cultivated in the Renaissance and in the art academies that, that, uh, that um, per, per sustained and, and promoted the Renaissance ideals, uh, from that point of view, the form was harmony artistic form was meant to uh, uh, be consonant, harmonious, um, uh, well composed, uh, well proportioned, so it was stable. uh, So mastery, stability, order, all of these are uh, principles uh, that are sustained by reason and uh, and so forth. Suddenly the medieval art and the extra European art introduced um, uh, um, the, the exact opposite, the possibility that actually disorder, dissonance, conflict even negativity could become an artistic resource now isn't that just modernism in the arts in a nutshell i mean mm-hmm. that is that is the big story the big yeah. the, in a way the big story that the west tells itself about its art and which um, art history tracked so that is in a way the plot line of my book is the move from i'm, I'm oversimplifying here but i call it the move from good form to bad form mm-hmm. or from harmony to dissonance and many, many art historians see this because remember, they're writing the, the, the classic art history of the 19th and 20th centuries Are writing in the centuries, in the decades of modernism. That's what they see happening. And they know they're, 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 they're confused by it. They don't know how to react because often the art historians are professors, you know, and museum curators. They weren't necessarily in tune with Picasso, but they knew that something big was happening and they knew they intuited that it was irreversible. So what does that mean, though? What does it really mean if the movement is going from good form to bad form? By bad form, I mean ironic, because I'm not like your students in Louisiana who think that that modernist art is bad form, and it's badly drawn, and therefore it's ugly. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, Mm -hmm. yes, it is sometimes badly drawn, but deliberately badly drawn. Mm -hmm. It is sometimes dissonant and negative, sometimes ugly, sometimes hard to look at. It's challenging. It's, uh, but all of it's disturbing. But all of this is is, is 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 again converted into an artistic resource and into aesthetic value by modernism. But where does this story end? Where does this story end? Like, do is it just like a kind of death spiral into nihilism? Is it the end just chaos? Is there, you know, uh, m- many many as, as philosophers of art and art historians as well have kind of concluded that you can't you can't. You know, it's a ratchet pro- ratcheting process. You can't go backwards. You can, but then it's just kitsch.
1: Mm-hmm. You can
0: go backwards, but then it's just nostalgia. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's, it's 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 it loses its authenticity. In order to be contemporary, you've got to kind of bravely push forward, even into um, modes of art making which uh, which initially are. Um, you know uh, 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 certainly unfamiliar and possibly even repellent mm. so h- how is one you know i feel myself i don't have an answer to this in the way the book kind of ends with this predicament i try to end on a, on a hopeful note i don't want to i didn't want to strike this kind of you know this uh, dark tone like ringing the bells and kind of, i wanted to i wanted to be hopeful because after all it doesn't belong to me it belongs to younger people so but i ended the book a little early you'll have noticed that i i, I stopped in the 1960s
1: yes this is actually exactly what i wanted to ask you about next and i'm so glad you know for listeners i might just pause and say it might sound like we're not talking about the book but chris is definitely talking about what's contained in the book um in terms of modernism is such a huge theme that you kind of pivot around constantly return to um circle back to you know um, the idea of irony and its meaning in terms of art, the importance of form and harmonious form versus you know non harmonious form these these are all major points in the book that serve kind of as threads in this web of this larger history that that Chris is expounding. But it is a little bit unusual, maybe, that the book ends essentially in 1960. Though you do push a little bit in terms of mentioning some figures, of course, in the conclusion that come after this. Um, and I will point out that I, the conclusion has a, a kind of subtitle. I hope I'm going to say it right. It's Latin word, uh, novissima, which means both the beginning and the end in a, in a really fascinating way, as, as only some of these great words from Greek and Latin can. And it struck me both that I wanted to ask you, of course, about why ending in 1960 or thereabouts. Some You do talk about it in the book, so I'm asking you to kind of reveal something in the book. But I really wanted to talk about this conclusion because it did strike me as the most polemical part of the book. It was a very different read in many ways than everything that came before it. And I wondered if you thought that was an accurate characterization or, or, you know, you just described the the toggling between hope and pessimism that you have as a scholar and maybe as a human being, too. And I saw that so strongly in that conclusion—hope, pessimism, sort of the the light that is John Berger and his breakthroughs in the 1970s, and the darkness of Nietzsche's nihilism in the 1870s. I mean, it just swings back and forth, and I I almost think I'm not sure where it lands. I almost think I need to sleep on it. It's as though. It's the kind of thing I either need to reread to decide whether I think it's negative in the end or that you do end on a positive note, or I need to let it settle. It's something to really think about. I, I feel like I could read that conclusion every day for a year and probably get something different. Oh, no, I I, I don't. I wish I had the time for that sort of exercise, but that conclusion, let's talk about it. So both ending the book at 1960 and and whether you think it is polemical in the way that I got a vibe...
0: Yes, it, it's polemical, but it's it's it, it, it uh, it's ambivalent, and so that in a way blunts the polemic because I'm, I'm I, I qualify things. I mean, I think the the, the language is sometimes forceful or aphoristic. I, 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 the writing style of the whole book is a little bit aphoristic, which is not everybody's taste. Some some people are annoyed by that because it sounds, you know, there are a lot of pronouncements and sentences that are that are kind of can stand on their own, and that's a style of writing that I. I like, but it's, um, you'll often find that there's a counter aphorism somewhere else just a few pages later. So it's not, the the aphorisms are meant to kind of, um, how should I say, they're kind of framing devices to say like, pay attention. Like the language, the aphoristic style of the, of the sentence is is, is telling you to pay attention right now and organize your thinking and, and think about what this all means. And it uh, doesn't mean that that's the, 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 the resting point of the argument. About the ending in the 60s, well, I had a, I had a, I had a premonition, and I wasn't wrong about it. I, I, I'll tell you why I know that, that if I were to have taken the book right up to the present... As or even quite close to the present, let's say to two thousand. I mean, after all, ending in the early. I kind of do talk about the early sixty. It doesn't really end in nineteen sixty because I do in in the conclusion talk about Kubler and John Berger, as you mentioned, yeah. who really is a figure of the nineteen seventy or so. Um, George Kubler is a very important figure. I uh, it, it, it's a you know some people would say that's a long way, but you know Eric Auerbach's *Mimesis*. It's a, a you know still widely read book uh, of the post-war period. It was published in German in 1948 and then translated quickly into into English. And Mimesis, the representation of reality in Western literature. It's essentially uh, a history, a rewriting of the history of Western literature from the Bible and Homer all the way up to modernism in a series of chapters which involve close readings of major works of Western literature. It's a... Book that every everyone should read. It's just still so exciting and compelling. But you know, this was a book written in the in the in the late 40s. Where does it end? It ends with Virginia Woolf. Hmm. You know, he didn't feel compelled to take it up to the 40s. He just thought, well, Virginia Woolf, who's writing in the teens of the 20th century, that's a significant moment, and I'm gonna end right there. Mm -hmm. And you know, you can decide for yourselves, he's basically saying to the reader, where we've come since then. So part of me said, you know, I was also thinking about um, you know Deleuze's book on uh, two two volumes on cinema. Gilles Deleuze, the French philosopher, wrote um, it's not exactly a history, but it's more like a kind of philosophical meditation on modern on cinema, right? Well, this was a book written in the eighties, sort of late, relatively late Deleuze, but it ends. Before the '60s, really, it's really a book about um, Eisenstein and Hitchcock and sort of classic mid-twentieth-century cinema, right? Auteur cinema to a certain extent, but it does not deal with the avant-garde cinema uh, uh, or film, let's say, of the '60s. You know, it's not doesn't deal with Andy Warhol, doesn't deal with. Um, it doesn't really deal with anything in the 60s. It just also ends in like 1960. So he didn't mind ending 25 years earlier because he's not writing. He's not, you know, it's not cultural commentary. Deleuze is not writing a commentary on his own time. Now I'm not Deleuze, but I also felt like I can do that. I could, we're doing it now. I can talk uh, uh, if you like about where is art history now, you know, where are we going, but that will date very quickly. Anything I say, anything you or I say right now in 2021 about the state of art history or where it's been over the last few years will sound obsolete in in, in 10 years, if not sooner, Mm. because it's, you know, it's like the difference between journalism and history, right? You write history and you, you, you're trying to, 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 to define a period or to uh, you know, give a shape to a historical period. And you hope that that is, has some authority and it might last for a while. With journalism, that's not what you're trying to do at all. You're just trying to respond to what's happening and shape people's opinions in real time, as it were, on the fly. And I didn't want that. And I knew what would happen if I started writing about the generation of my teachers And I'm talking now, and I'm just going to invoke a few names, American figures. There are many in Europe who are equivalent, who are also my teachers. Uh, But in America, we're thinking of people like Michael Freed, Rosalind Krauss, T.J. Clark, who's British but taught in America, Mm -hmm. uh, and Svetlana Alpers, uh, many, many others who were our teachers and who are now... Um, you know, getting on in years, but it had an immeasurable impact on the discipline. And Michael Baxendahl, who in fact is no longer alive, but belongs to that same generation. And yes, and I've actually written on some of these people, and so I, it's not that I'm afraid to write about them, it's that I knew that if I were to write about them, but ninety-five percent of my readers, at least within art history, at least within that, would skip right to that last chapter just mm-hmm. to see what I say, <laughs> because that's yeah. it's like a it's like a gossip page. It's like it would be just like I know this sounds ridiculous, because and some listeners might think, oh well, no, I I don't I couldn't care less about that. I really want to hear about the Renaissance or whatever. But I can assure you that many readers, many readers, would have just cut to the chase and read the last chapter on art history since the 70s basically Mm -hmm. which is what we're talking about here the rubrics are things like the social history of art uh, marxism feminism psychoanalysis and then uh, succeeded by much more uh, up-to-date methodologies what's so-called post-colonialism queer theory eco-criticism the list is endless the things that we do now basically Mm -hmm. and yes i'm not saying that i would I or anyone would be incapable of coordinating what's happening now with what happened earlier. But I'm kind of leaving it to the reader. Like, you figure it out. I've told you a story that I think you don't know, or you probably haven't heard most of this story. Now you connect the dots and see see what happens. I also uh, didn't want to write about living art historians. I just kind of made that a rule, you know. Um, I I will tell you, I won't name who, but um, one of those people I just named who's alive when when i i said to this person in an email i mean you know i know these people they're my teacher generation but i you know i know them and i said in an email in a casual way um oh i i can't remember how it came up i'd like to send you my book or the person you know i said oh it's finished the book is out or something like that history of Art history and the person wrote back i quake oh oh god meaning (laughs) like Reading, like, I can't wait to see, like, I'm afraid, but I also can't wait to see how I appear in your book. Uh, and I had to write back, like, well, sorry, you're alive, so you're not in it. Like, you're, you're gonna, you know, it's a big, gonna be a big test for your ego, but you actually might have to read the book knowing that you're not mentioned in it. Yeah. You know, and then it would be this huge ego thing because everyone would be so, like, well, how come so and so got mentioned and not so and so? But if you okay. stick to dead people, it's fine. But then what, it, what, what I feared would happen, actually did happen. Uh, A a colleague of mine, a younger colleague who is someone, you know, your age teaching in somewhere in Europe, I forget, Zurich or Basel, a Swiss Swiss colleague, um, basically teaching a kind of intro to art history. And he wrote to me, he says, well, I haven't managed to get a copy of the book yet, but do you think you could just send me a PDF of the last chapter? Because I want to teach it for my course. He hadn't seen it. He hadn't seen the book. He didn't know anything about the last chapter. He didn't mean the conclusion that, that you're talking about. He just meant, like, I don't really care about your book, and nor will my students, but w- except for that last chapter, which he knew would cover like the 80s and 90s and whatever. Yeah. So, oh, again, I'm I just. am
1: so glad that I asked you about this because now I'm totally convinced. Like, you've made me a true believer. That you're absolutely right. That if you had done that, so many, including myself, I'm ashamed to admit, and I did not read the book in order. I don't know. I found it really fun to kind of skip around and go to places I was really interested in, and then circle back to others, and then read the conclusion. I was like, "Whoa! I got to go back." And I think you're right that I would have been a little bit chomping at the bit for for you know your take on these most recent figures. And that it would have been super problematic to talk about anyone who's living. I, I, I'm almost like ashamed that I asked you this question, but glad that I did, because now I'm totally satisfied with the explanation. It also makes me want to ask, I hope this isn't too much of a curveball, but I wondered as I read this conclusion and actually some parts of the book, what order you wrote it in. You know, we don't reveal often as authors that you know, people think we write it from beginning to end. And for chapter one, of course, I wrote first, and then chapter two came next. But that's never how books get written, at least not how I, I wrote mine. And I wondered in particular whether you wrote the introduction or the conclusion first.
0: Do you mm. mind answering that one? Well, no, that's easy to answer, and I, but I don't think the answer will be that interesting but let me you know what I should do is just very very briefly explain the structure of the book yeah because please, as you, please. you you suggested earlier that our conversation might sound as if we weren't even talking about the book although you were right we were talking about the book all those themes of, of from good form to bad form and so forth they're, they're they are the Essence of the book. However, the book is structured in a in a in a in a quite schematic way. It's not just a kind of endless flow of ideas that never get anchored. It's it's strictly chronological. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I borrowed that from um, a 17th century historian of art called Filippo Baldinucci, who was a Florentine, and he was uh, he assembled notes. He was a a, 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 he went into the archives in Florence. in In the we're talking about the 1600s here. Uh, so after Vasari. And he, in a way, he wanted to kind of supplement Vasari by g- going into the archives and learning more. So he wrote also biographical based um, uh, account of Florentine art, but he organized it strictly by decades, based on which decade the artist was most active in so you know so and so would appear in the 1540s so and so would appear in the 1550s and so forth it was just a way of imposing a kind of a rigid chronological good so i did the same thing mm-hmm. and the book is structured because i didn't want chapters with because this has been done before there, there i did mention you mentioned that this is the first time it's been done in english but there are several there are about three or four books in french and german that have attempted to do an Italian, French, German, and Italian. That have attempted to do something similar, and a couple of them are quite bad, and a couple of them are quite good, mm. and and they were some in some ways m- both negative and positive models for me. But that's not many when you think of it. And when you think of you know all the many many decades of art history, the fact that only that this is really only the fifth book I would say that attempted to sketch the whole arc, mm-hmm. and the first one in English, but. Often the chapter headings for those books are, you know, they're, they're, they're organized under isms, the way art history sometimes is. Yeah. So there'll be like the expressionist moment in art history or, you know, there, there'll be the, the, the romanticism. There'll be the, these isms which kind of already govern the content. And I kind of wanted the periodization to be more neutral, just chronological. Mm-hmm. and just and just say, well, look, in this period, this is what happened. So I divided up, and I, I found quickly that in order to have chapters of roughly equal length, the earlier chapters would have to cover wider intervals. Yeah, so uh, So I begin with, like the first, after the introduction, which is relatively long and lays down some kind of preliminary principles, I have a section, which is, I think, something like 800 to 1400. Yeah, which is it's a 600
1: very, years, that first
0: one. It's, it's 600 years, because that. between, yeah, between 800 <laughs> and 1400, there is almost no art historical thinking. Right. There's plenty of art made. We call it medieval art, mm-hmm. right? There's plenty of art made, and there's plenty of thinking about art, and there's even some writing about art, but there's no, or virtually no, art historical thinking. So what is art historical thinking? It is the decision to uh, think uh, about art as something that has evolved over time and that is something that might be coordinated with time I want to say that the very notion of thinking art historically is um, counterintuitive and um, may explain the bafflement of some people confronted with this book who who are you know who think well, is it a history of art what is it a history of really right well how do most how do most of us and most people in all times and places react to art? What are they looking for in art? Well, they want art that is beautiful. They want to know, is it Mm well-made? Has it been well-crafted? Is it, is it meaningful? Is it powerful? And uh, these, these criteria are in some sense thought to be, um, you know, transcendent. They transcend time. Like a beautiful thing is a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, a flower is beautiful and a sunset is beautiful. And um, ideas about, Divinity or God—I mean, these are these are ideas that 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 that, that um, you know um, span s- cultures and times, and that art is meant to uh, deliver, in a way, eternity. It's meant to deliver something permanent, something lasting. Who's? Wh- why would anyone think about it historically? Right? <laughs> it's a very—it is a very—it's a very—it's a very perverse. It's a very wet, no. Another topic which uh, which I want—I'm just going to preempt you because I bet you are going to ask about it—is the Eurocentrism of the book.
1: I wasn't actually, though oh. I, I did see that reviews, you know, sort of pushed at that, but I didn't find that something that I was troubled by. Honestly, I thought you did a, a great job of finding ways to draw in. What was it? There's this one moment where uh, you parallel Vasari, who, of course, everybody thinks the book is going to start with. But you do a beautiful job of waiting, I think, till page 80 or something before Vasari even makes, you know, the appearance that usually is page one of of books or thinking like this. But you compare his Lives of the Artist to the album preface of Dust Muhammad. And that was just one of so many juicy little morsels of connection to you know, outside of this Eurocentric vision, I understand. I guess why reviewers would say that, but
0: no, I, I was in trouble by that, Chris. Well, I'm, 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 I'm grateful that you weren't. I mean, I, I was. I mean, I'm. I uh, I don't know how to put this. I, I I'm extremely aware and and um, and um, um, cognizant of this issue. Mm-hmm. But I'll say two things. I'm. This book is based on primary sources. You might have noticed that I almost never deal with secondary sources that is to say i don't i don't spend any sentences or pages debating with other scholars Mm -mm. the idea of the book is that what i did is after dividing it up into these periods is that i went and read all the primary sources that i could and just Mm -hmm. actually read them not Mm -hmm. every single word but you know you can't rosari's eight volumes i couldn't read every single word but just i would just steep myself in primary sources and by that i mean you know the, the people living at the time who wrote in the way that I was interested, who wrote art history of some sort. So this person, Baldinucci, that I mentioned, and then moving on to the 18th century, uh, uh, Johann Joachim Winckelmann, the German uh, uh, historian of ancient art, and also Goethe, the great poet, and Polymath, who wrote quite a few interesting texts on art history, is one of the heroes of my book, Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. I tried to identify primary sources, and I tried to cast a wide net and include primary sources who were not academic art historians Mm -hmm. perforce, because in the pre-modern period, there weren't any professors of art history. So poets and uh, painters, in in some cases, philosophers, whoever wrote and thought historically about art. So one of my rules is that, you know, as much as possible... I want to re- read in the original languages and I, I, I don't feel confident as a historian. I, I would never, I would never work on Russian art as you do, because I don't know Russian and it would, anything I say would just wouldn't ring true, but I do know it's a number of languages. So French, German, Italian, and Latin, and I, I can I do all right with Spanish and Dutch as well. Um, and, and I, I feel somewhat comfortable with Greek as well, but, um, and now, Chinese, I actually can speak some conversational Chinese because I taught at NYU Shanghai and studied Chinese for a year. So I, and I actually, um, I do know quite a bit about Chinese art. But nevertheless, my rudimentary Chinese does not help me reading primary sources in, in, in Chinese. So for the Chinese material, that is the, the other great, in fact, it's a greater and longer tradition um i was very very worried and careful and and, um i did of course have to read some texts in translation limited to which texts are translated there really aren't that many and then i had many conversations with um sinologist colleagues testing my ideas and and basically my sinologist friends have said what you wrote is fine like it's you didn't make any blunders uh and that's all I wanted to do. But I re- really, I, I just didn't want, I just felt it would be, that would be the true Western arrogance, in fact, is to barge into a field like that and imagine that I could make sense of it. So I, I was very tentative. Now, apart from the Chinese and also Japanese later on, what are the traditions of writing and thinking art historically? Well, art making is universal. All peoples in all kinds of places have made art, and it's all of great, great value. But art history writing, you mentioned Dos Muhammad so there's a Persian tradition, you know, uh, where uh, an Ottoman, Persian and Ottoman tradition of writing. And that has been some important texts like his, these album prefaces from which I drew that comparison have been translated and well commented upon by excellent scholars. So I felt comfortable making that comparison between the, Contempor- these two contemporaries, Dos Mohammed and Vazari. And I made some comparisons with the Chinese. But there isn't much else, really. There are limits to, I mean, you know, if I want to say, well, if you're a sinologist and you feel that there's more that, that should be told from the re- reverse perspective, I wish someone who is knowledgeable would write the book in reverse perspective. Like, write a history of art history that's told from the Chinese point of view, where by the European phenomenon is seen as kind of marginal and on the edges. Why not? I'd like to see, hear that perspective. I tried to do that. I tried to do that with dost Muhammad because I said, well, we're all very pleased with Vasari. And in fact, he's one of the protagonists of my book. I'm also very impressed by Vasari. It's, it's, it's a colossal achievement. But on the other hand, compared to dost Muhammad, his comments on art are rather... They're kind of dry and thin. He just doesn't have the, you know, Vasari's a wonderful scholar. He was very scrupulous about trying to get the dates right and so forth. But his comments on paintings are not that interesting, really. He often just says, you know, you, you, if you've read Vasari. You know, he often just says, oh, you know, this painting by Raphael is very, very beautiful. You know, it's just. It's just graceful and divine and just so beautiful. And it couldn't be more beautiful. You know, (laughs) this is not great art criticism. I mean, you know, whereas whereas in the other traditions, including the Chinese, the art criticism or description of works of art is often very, very poetical and very profound. So it took my reading. I had to read in these other traditions in order to put Vasari in a kind of reverse perspective and see his limitations, so I tried my best. So you know, thank you for not judging me on that. Now, just to go on about the, the chronology, so 800 to 1400, and 1400 to 1500 needed. I needed only one chapter to cover that whole century. Then I started dividing them up into half centuries. So it goes 1500 to 1550, 1550 to 1600. Then at some point in the 18th century, in 19th century, it becomes every 20 years. So 1810 to 1830, 1830. And then in the 20th century, it's every 10 years. So then it's 19 teens, 1920s, 1930s, each decade gets its own chapter. That's really interesting, because it means that the quantity, just the sheer quantity of material is so great. In fact, at this point, you'd have to divide it up almost into half decades, it would be 2010 to 2015. And that's getting a little crazy. So all that to say, that's the overall structure of the book. Yes, there's a long introduction with some basic principles. Then there are these chronological chapters, which involve me commenting on primary sources with quite a lot of quotes. I like quotes from primary sources, all translated by me. The translations are all my own from the original languages. No, it's not really. It's just that it's you find when you go back to the originals that the translations often make mistakes. So you got to read the originals if you can. And then uh, and then it ends, as we said, yeah, in the 60s. I forget where that question began.
1: It's okay. No, I'm so glad. I feel like you're doing something that I'm usually much better about in these interviews, which is at some point sort of pausing and saying, here's the overall structure of the book. There's 21 chapters. They're broken down by this chronology. And I'm so glad that you interjected and sort of returned that sense of the, the way the book is framed overall, because I think you're right that it's not necessarily a typical way to do it. The isms way would have been the, the way that when I first cracked the table of contents, I, I, I'm not sure what I was quite expecting, because I know your work well enough to know that you you go against the grain. You know, you don't necessarily do art history the way that everybody else does. So I, I tried to open it with just, you know, totally sort of blank slate and and absorb what was there. I I am so upset that our time is is winding down, and I uh, as always, I we get to an hour, and I still have tons of questions that I would love to ask, and I'm I'm sure listeners are are, well, I'm hoping that they're intrigued and are going to pick up the book and and dive in and and explore, and won't hold me to task too much for all the things that I didn't get a chance to ask. Can I? You already hinted a little bit, and I, I've been sort of waiting to ask this uh, to return to it. The traditional last question here on New Books Network is just to ask you what you're working on now. And you mentioned something, a book that you finished during COVID. But, so tell us about that, and if there's even more on
0: the horizon, I'd love to hear about it. Well, that is a book that I literally push send uh, on uh, just a week ago. Oh,
1: congratulations!
0: Um, That's huge. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was a it it's a project that I it's it has to do with portraiture and the uh, intervention or introduction of um, of portraits of lay devout people into religious paintings. So kind of a, a kind of a encroachment or a, a penetration of the of the sacred image by uh, portraits of real people you know, uh, 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 we call them donor portraits or or portraits of the patrons and so forth. This is a big phenomenon. And uh, and, and I'm I'm focusing just on on 14th century Florence and, and Siena. So classic ground of Giotto. Giotto and his followers ending around 1400 or early 15th century with Fra Angelico. It kind of tells a story from Giotto to Fra Angelico. It's something I've been working on for a while. But when COVID came, and, every, you know, in March 2020 and things kind of shut down and, uh, and I had done a lot of the research and I had tons of notes on my hands, but was looking for a space of time to just write it up. So I, so I did. I just sat down and, and, and wrote this book and, and, and just finished it. And uh, so that it's about the sacred and the profane, basically. It's about the, 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 the tensions between the sacred and the profane and how, the, how this gets worked out in the medium of the painting.
1: Oh man, I will be so looking forward to this. Uh, Speaking of my students in Louisiana, they always ask about these people that you're describing, these donors, you know, kneeling, or I think their favorite moment is of course Enrico Scroveni in Giotto's Arena Chapel, who who so famously has himself included. And that has long needed, I think, a a full length discussion by someone of, of your knowledge and expertise. And. Well, I'll have to have you back on the show to to talk about that when it comes out. That's really exciting. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you about your book today. Like I said before, I could just I could keep talking about it with you endlessly. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this and answer my questions.
0: Thank you, Allison. It's been a, it's really a, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm very grateful to have had all this time to talk with you.
1: All right. Thank you. Well. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name, as always, is Alison Lee, and I have been talking to the wonderful Christopher Wood about his book that I hope everybody goes and gets a copy of. It's called A History of Art History. Thank you so much for listening.